0: Okay, we'll continue today in our study in Acts, Acts 17, 16 through 21 this morning. Let's pray. Father, forgive us, uh, we pray, for drinking from our broken cisterns, the waters of the world, the waters of our own sinful desires, the waters of the good in place of the best. Will you give us that water that satisfies living water that only you can give? The water that, when you give, becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yes, that you'd give us these things through your word this morning, that we would find Christ therein, who is eternal life. In his name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 17, 16 through 21 This is directly after Paul departs from Berea. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is God's word. You may be seated. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. He also says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. wonder if you feel that way. As if all of the the noise is just pointless vanity, I just wanna, I want a fixed point, I want a nail firmly fixed on which to hang my my hat. I, uh, amid the sifting sands of opinions and the pounding waves of doctrine, I need a firm foundation on which to stand. In our text today, we see the shifting sand storms of vanity. We also begin to see how a firm foundation in the goads of the wise shepherd gives Paul the ability to chart a direct course through what would otherwise be a winding labyrinth of vain philosophy and empty deceit. And that being rooted and grounded in Christ is the only way to withstand the battering waves of doctrine. We begin in verse 16 says that Paul was waiting for them at Athens. That is Timothy and Silas. If you back up to verses 14 and 15 says, then the brothers in Berea immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul is waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas there in Athens. Athens is a symbol of wealth, of beauty, of philosophy. Uh, Craig Keener says that people from other cities, like Jewish scholars, would brag about having bested Athenian philosophers in debate. Um, Athens really stood as a, as a symbol of beauty and architecture, and philosophy. And really, it had peaked at this time. There were other cities surpassing Athens, but it still stood as kind of a a symbol. Keener again says, from an aesthetic standpoint, Athens was unrivaled for its its exquisite architecture and statues. Athens being a major focal point in Greek culture for hundreds of years, the, the, the historical and cultural roots of Athens run Deep. I think we're all familiar probably with the Acropolis, this rocky hill in the middle of the city of Athens. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The Acropolis stood above the city of Athens and the meaning of the word is actually highest point um, We're familiar with this idea of the high places being the places of worship. We're familiar with that idea in the Old Testament. And really, the whole Acropolis was devoted to worship, Um, primarily the worship of Athena, but other gods, too. On top of the Acropolis stood the famous Parthenon that we're familiar with, the the temple to Athena. Um, Also on top of the Acropolis... Stood other temples that were devoted to gods like Nike, Artemis, Zeus, and other gods, which I cannot pronounce the name of. The city itself was decorated with idols of all kinds. Uh, Ancient writer Livy says, Athens is full of the images of gods and men, adorned with every variety of material and with all the skill of art. Pliny likewise states that in the time of Nero, Athens had over 30,000 public statues besides countless private statues in homes. And Petronius said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Human beings, we have worship built into the fabric of who we are. In one sense, everything we do is worship. Many of the great and beautiful monuments around the world are done as an expression of the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. Pyramids, sculptures, grand architecture, art, it's all done in the name of serving the divine. And at first blush, I think I'm often impressed right, with these ancient monuments. How did they accomplish this? Look at their skill. Look at their craftsmanship. And in one very real sense, there are many ways in which humanity in doing this is expressing the image of God. For example, the Taj Mahal, just one example, is a picture of beauty and of order and of craftsmanship and it's devoted to to Allah, to, to the Muslim God. Those things, those, that beauty and craftsmanship and order are things born out of the image of God in, in, in the men who designed and built that structure. Now, Paul's response here is worth noting and emulating. He, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him. The Greek word provoked is one we encountered a few weeks ago. Um, and it's the one from which we get our very familiar word, paroxysm, which means a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. Um, it was the same word translated sharp disagreement when Paul and Barnabas butted heads. So this is how Paul is feeling. He's provoked, he's inflamed. Calvin says he waxed hot. He's inflamed by the idolatry of the city. Calvin says, um, and this example is worth the noting that the city, which was the mansion house of wisdom, the fountain of all the arts, the mother of humanity did exceed all others in blindness and madness. Have you have you had this experience of being pricked in the soul, waxing hot over? idolatry and we should be idolatry is an affront to our God whom we call father. And I've wondered, I've only seen pictures, but I've wondered if I was in Rome, for example, how would I handle visiting something like St. Peter's Basilica? It's one of the most majestic, if not the most majestic church building in the world. The names on the list of architects and artists who contributed to its construction includes Michelangelo, Raphael, and Bernini. It's built over 120 years, and it's just an absolutely a stunning achievement. And another picture of beauty and order and craftsmanship, and a testament, really, to the Imago Dei, that that we would create something like this. Ralph Waldo Emerson described St. Peter's as an ornament of the earth, the sublime of the beautiful. However, it is literally a beautiful tomb filled with dead man's bones. They claim Apostle Peter's bones are there. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But because of that, there are therefore 91 popes buried in St. Peter's Basilica. Its construction was funded by the sale of indulgences and somewhat ironically, but not coincidentally, it was built throughout the height of the Reformation. Um, Begun in 1506, about a decade before Luther posted his theses and completed in 1626 after Calvin and Luther were both long dead and about 20 years before the writing of the Westminster Confession. And it was, really, the push to sell indulgences to build St. Peter's Basilica that caused Luther to post his 95 Theses. And this building, this magnificent building, has been devoted to the idolatry of the Mass, Mariology, worship of saints since its construction. So I think for me, to walk into that building, I would feel very conflicted and uncomfortable as someone who fancies himself as something of an amateur craftsmanship or craftsman. I think I'd be impressed. I think I would be in awe of that building, but I would have a very hard time separating respect for the craftsmanship and multi-generational accomplishment from sorrow and even anger over the idolatry expressed there. And in the name of Christ, no less, which I think makes it worse. So it is appropriate that our spirit is provoked, that we are inflamed to anger over idolatry. Now, I want to be heard rightly here. I don't want, I, I want, here, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, uh, do not be impressed with grand architecture or, or secular art or unbelieving art or don't enjoy stunning or beautiful music, or or whatever. No artist or architect invented his craft by himself from scratch. He creates because creativity is an expression of the image of of the ultimate creator in him. As he sculpts, even if he sculpts the most perverse sculpture, he does so as an image-bearer, as a corrupted image-bearer, but as an image-bearer. And unbelieving artists are, in their own way, fulfilling the cultural mandate to subdue the earth. So we can enjoy it to a point, respecting the image of God and the person who created it. And we can enjoy it knowing that all truth is God's truth and all truth meets at the top. That everything beautiful ultimately has its source in Him. And that whatever goodness is to be found in these things is the result of God's common grace. Also, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying by any stretch that we necessarily as Christians respond by rejecting beauty and art and architecture. In one sense, we should be the best artists, the best architects, the best musicians and sculptors. The Bible is full of beauty in worship, um, from the care and craftsmanship taken with the tabernacle to the beauty of the Grand Temple of Solomon to the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation. All of it is reflecting that Edenic beauty and awe-filled reverential life in the presence of God. Particularly with reference to worship, uh, architecture communicates. It says something. Ideally, the space in which we worship should communicate that same sense of of awe. As Dr. Sproul has said, um, as we enter the sanctuary, we are crossing the threshold from the common to the uncommon, from the secular to the sacred, from the profane to the holy. What I am saying, I am saying that all the beauty, history, culture, art, craftsmanship, awe-inspiring architecture amounts to nothing. It amounts, in fact, to less than nothing. It amounts to judgment, as the the men of Babel were judged, if the object of our worship is misplaced. The object of our worship is the most important thing. And remember that as you enter this sanctuary on Sunday mornings, as we enter into this very average building, with, with school stuff stashed in the corners, We are no less entering the presence of God. In fact, I think it's a good test for us that if we can't feel a sense of awe coming into the presence of God in a very average setting, we might ask whether we're spiritually mature enough to handle beauty and awe-inspiring architecture in our worship. Wherever we are, true worship is in spirit and in truth. And on the Lord's day, we come to this covenant renewal in which we hear again the promises of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and respond in turn and we enjoy a covenant meal together. Jesus himself made it clear the temple would be destroyed in three days and, and he would rebuild it. He himself is our temple. and He has ascended so that the, the locus of our worship occupies the most majestic Possible setting. The very presence and throne room of God. I realize all of this may seem like a diversion, but it's not because Paul's reaction to idolatry is very informative in terms of how we should think about the object and expression of our worship. Paul is provoked in his soul because he is zealous to see that the one true God is worshipped and to see individuals bend the knee in repentance and faith. So his provocation is really a love of neighbor and not one of hatred, but a love of God and a concern for souls. And this provocation of soul leads him to action. Goes on, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I believe here Luke's emphasis is on the marketplace. It's kind of like, yes, he did spend time in the synagogue as he always did, but he also added this additional uh, time in the marketplace reasoning with these uh, Gentile philosophers as well. Paul's response, despite being um, provoked in spirit, is not to to lash out. I think the the response of some when provoked by the wickedness of the world uh, is to lash out in our own hearts, lingers, even if we don't have like a special sign in the closet. It lingers a little bit of that Westboro Baptist spirit. All right? like. Pack some SPF 1000 for where you're going. Paul does what he does. He wants fervently to see souls transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so he preaches the gospel. He reasons with Jew and Greek. He wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth. While he's in the marketplace, Paul encounters philosophers in verse 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So There are two schools of thought here, two opposing schools of thought, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans, in short, Their philosophy was seek maximum pleasure. They were hedonists, but they also understood moderation. They also believed in divinities, but they were sort of like deists. They didn't believe that the gods actually did anything. Really, they were interested in their own pleasure and they didn't interact with the world. Greek philosopher Diogenes summarizes the Epicurean view of life Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Pleasure can be attained. Pain can be endured. Sproul says that their philosophy was to seek pleasure in moderation, just the right amount of food and drink or adultery. The Epicureans tried to come up with a formula or a calculus of pleasure and pain to maximize pleasure. Stoics on the other hand they were fairly fatalistic Um, they believed that while we can't control our outcome we can control our attitudes, keep a stiff upper lip Sproul again says of the Stoics uh, that man can be bitter or discouraged or defeated by what life throws his way or he can develop the philosophical uh, attitude of imperturbability that was the Stoics philosophy and these Epicureans and Stoics had two responses to Paul's message. First, they asked, what does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler here has uh, roots that mean uh, birds that pick up seeds. Daryl Bach says the term has the connotation of a person who picks up bits of information and passes them off as if he knows what he's talking about. Some, when uh, Lexicon used the term scrapmonger, this, Paul is a scrapmonger. So it's somebody who picks up bits of, and pieces of information and passes them along as though he knows what he's talking about. Lao and Nita say that it's a pseudo intellectual who insists on spouting off. This is what they're accusing Paul of being. It's interesting here, uh, bear with me. Greek grammarian D- Daniel Wallace says that the grammatical construction is a fourth class conditional, which to me is very exciting. I'll tell you all about it after church if you want to hear more. But he calls it a condition of less probable future. In other words, the idea here, what's being implied is, what would this pseudo-intellectual wish to say if he had anything worth saying at all? That's their first response to Paul's message, to call Paul a seed picker and a scrap monger, as if he had anything to say at all. Their second response seems to he says that they, they said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, um, which interestingly, this charge is the same charge that Socrates was charged with. And there's whole papers suggesting that that Luke is comparing Paul and Socrates, and you're welcome to read those on your own if you want to. Um, But liberal scholarship often questions whether the earliest church actually claims that Jesus was divine. But here we see clearly whatever it was Paul was saying, they heard them saying, him saying, Jesus is divine. He's a foreign divinity. It was the preaching of the resurrection that tipped them off. The, the, the babbler um, did not believe this Jesus fellow was a mere man. He clearly had supernatural, superhuman abilities, divine abilities. He could rise from the dead. And for all their accusations, it seems that the philosophers were hedging a little bit here because they're clearly very curious about what Paul has to say. In verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. In Colossians 4. Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him. Specifically to pray that God would open a door. For the word to declare the mystery of Christ. We have to recognize that as Paul comes before the the Athenians here at the Areopagus um, and and some of the most powerful and prominent thinkers in Athens, this is not by accident or by his own wit. This is a door opened by the grace of God to preach the, the gospel, to preach the word of God. The Areopagus, or often called Mars Hill, uh, was a rocky outcropping below, to the northwest of uh, the Acropolis, and it's where a council of men would meet to to try crimes or to debate and regulate city life, education, philosophy, morality, foreign religions. Um, and some suggest here that that at this point in time they may not have actually been meeting on Mars Hill, but that they maintained the name. Um, whether I don't know which is the case. But either way, Paul goes before this group of, of men and philosophers. And despite the uh, possible allusion to Socrates, it doesn't appear from the context that Paul is on some kind of formal trial, as he had been in other cities. They're just inviting him in as a, as a kind of a guest speaker. Will you tell us about this new doctrine that we have not heard about before? Now Luke concludes this prefatory story leading up to Paul's sermon on on Mars Hill with a a remark of his own in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, Luke is a a craftsman of a writer. He he loves irony. And for the Greek-speaking reader, uh, they would see Luke's implication here. Is it Paul who is the seed picker? The scrapmonger? The man who gathers bits of information and disperses them? Is it really Paul? Or maybe there's some other scrapmongers? They would spend their time in nothing except hearing and telling something new. They would pick it up and put it down again. It's another example of what Spurgeon said in the quote that I Read last week that they go up a hill only to come down again. Indeed, they say that the pursuit of truth is better than truth itself. They like fishing better than the fish. They're like those who Paul condemns in 2 Timothy 3, 7, who are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Athens was a symbol of beauty, of art, of architecture, and also of philosophy. It's the home of Plato and Aristotle, two men whose philosophy impacts us greatly today in the West. Such philosophy stands as as a grand and beautiful cathedral, a testament to the image of God and man. And yet, in an ultimate sense, it too is, is a gorgeous tomb filled with dead man's bones. Calvin says here that they are moved not with any desire to learn, but with vain curiosity. There's a great danger in vain curiosity. Beware the temptation to ask endless strings of questions without arriving at answers, at conclusions. True philosophy, Sophia, the love of wisdom, is not endless scrap mongering. It is asking questions in a pursuit, a pursuit of the knowledge of the truth, a pursuit of conclusions about who God is and how we should live before him. As Jesus said, every man who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. There's something truly rare here. um, something that sounds, I think, too good to be true, and it's a shortcut. Most shortcuts in life turn out to be dangerous, filled with pitfalls and snares, but there's a shortcut to the path, on the path to wisdom. One that will put us out ahead of the greatest intellects and the wisest philosophers who ever lived. We see this shortcut in Psalm one nineteen ninety seven through ninety nine. Oh, how I love your law! It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So it was not Paul who was the scrapmonger. He knew his God. He knew his worldview and it had deep historical roots. His wisdom stood on the foundation of God's word. and He was a tree plant planted firmly by streams of water. I'll close with Paul here from Colossians 2, 6 through 8. and Hear his exhortation. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Amen.